0: We are class number 57. Can you believe that? Does that mean we've been doing this two years? Two years? Time just... How time flies when you're having fun. This is more than the Gita took. But the Gita I had ten pages each time. So I was galloping through it. Okay. So, any questions or comments in regard to anything that we've had so far? You're, just, you're not sitting around ponta, uh, contemplating Samyama this and samyama that? I am. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah, that's right. You all, you all are stuck just like me. OK. 3:26. I should stop saying that. The Lord can do anything through any instrument. By samyama on the inner light, knowledge of what is subtle, subtle, hidden or remote is obtained. Swamiji says, everything in creation is connected. Science tells us that it is a combination of molecules, atoms, and electrons. But science works always at a distance as if with prongs. <laughs> so he said it. <laughs> do you love it? Swamiji, I know alone in his study, he loves it. He, he says himself, whenever he gets an image that's just perfect, it just always amuses him. And I'm sure when he wrote, science works at a distance as if with prongs, he must have really enjoyed it because immediately you see it, right? Um, Everything, in fact, is a projection of God's bliss manifesting itself ever newly. It is helpful to understand that the powers Patanjali wrote about are powers that we all have, even to a lesser extent. I mean, that's what I've been trying to make happen with this is just going through this which is so beyond us to try to figure out what threads of this we can pull down to our life and so that we can climb up those threads up to the heights of where this goes. Um, I read, uh, uh, I've, I've told many of you that I I am doing the research or the background in, in order to write another book about Swami. So every every day I have these fascinating new little tidbits that I'm pulling off these fragments of notes that I have. Um, And he just, he made this comment. He said, Master, you know, you may have noticed that in all the years that Swami talks, he he has never really talked that much directly about meditation, only sometimes. You know, he, he... after many years, he occasionally had those Kriya retreats. Like in the, in the 80s, he started having a Kriya retreat and he had a few of them and he gave us the higher Kriyas and a few things. And of course, when he would do Kriya initiations or weekends, he'd talk like that. And he always mentions meditation. He never didn't. But, but when you look at the vast number of things that he talked about, you hardly got the impression at the end of it that the only thing we were doing was meditation. Now there's, a, there's a, a fact about Swami that you always have to keep in mind, that he always does what does, did, what Master did. And he, he, took, his, he, was, he took his cues entirely from Master. He was, he, he was a total blank slate when he walked into Master. He, didn't, he knew nothing about these teachings. He no, knew none of the voc- vocabulary, just nothing. Um, it's important to realize that, not that that would be so unusual. I mean, many of us were blank slates, more or less, when we walked in. But he was really blank. And so his entire definition of the spiritual path was first given to him in those two and a half, three half, three, three years he had with Master, three and a half years. And he talks about often how much Master talked to him about the teachings and how much Master talked to him about his life and what he was doing and how, how much time Swami spent alone with Master. And the point of that is partly because he was always alone with Master. So, so, so when other people say it couldn't have happened, well, he was alone. But the other side of that, which is an interesting fact is, and I've of course watched this, I watched this with Swamiji, and it was of course true with Master. He adjusted himself to whoever was there. And he, he, he Master didn't have a reality of his own. His reality was always and only zero other purpose. He was there to serve the spiritual welfare of the people he'd come to serve. I and mean, think about it. He had no karma. He had no interests. He, had, he just had one job, and that was just to serve the spiritual welfare of the people he was with. So wherever he was, whoever he was with, he was serving their welfare. I saw Swamiji many times um, you know, adjust himself to what was needed in the room. You know, if somebody was not able to receive information, he would just not give it. If, even if there were several people in the room who were quite uh, in tune with what he was doing, if someone else was not, then he, would, he, would, he wasn't able. It wasn't so much that he was a refrain, he just wasn't able to give in the same way because it wasn't being pulled from him. And often after social interactions or public talks or anything like that, Swami would comment about what was pulled through him because, again, it was very, very impersonal. So the fact that Master spent so much time alone with Swami and so much of what was really important for Swami happened when no one else was around is also telling you that Master was able then and deliberately certainly had it that way to attune himself completely to what Swamiji needed. And And Swami even mentioned that often when Master would be talking to a room full of people, especially explaining the teachings, he would, he would talk directly to Swami. Swami said he always wanted to close his eyes, but he couldn't because Master was so often talking to him. Interestingly, when I interviewed Swami's cousin who uh, had met, who met Master, uh, Beth Hover, she's in the astral world too now. Um, and I, I put this in the book. She said, uh, clearly, Swami, Swami was the apple of Master's eye. And he said that Swami had with Master the kind of father-son relationship that Swami did not have with his own father because his own father, was they weren't in tune. And, uh, and then she said again, he was so clearly Master's favorite. I said to Bet at the time when I interviewed her, how could you tell? Oh, she said it was just so obvious. Just like that. And then I went to Swamiji and I told him because I mean, I'd never heard Swami say anything like that. I said, Bet said... You were the apple of Master's eye, and he smiled, and then he said, "This, well, I was." You know, and Swamis nev- had never said anything like that ever, um, because it would just wouldn't have been seemly. But when it was said from the outside, and I wanted it confirmed, he just confirmed it like that. Now. What that's all about is that Master transferred to him, which is where I'm going. This is a long introduction, but it's an interesting one, don't you think? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, where I'm going with that is that even though you know the training happened young, he was very thorough. And of course ever thereafter, Swamiji always attuned himself to all that Master had put in him. And tried to understand who Master was in the broadest sense. Um, so, it, I, I, you know, through all the years that I watched Swami do things, at a certain point, because so often when Swami would talk about what Master would do, over, the, over many years I'm talking, he would always be describing himself. I mean, so often be describing himself. Uh, I don't mean in the state of cosmic consciousness or when he would praise Master or talk about how extraordinary Master was, but when he would just talk about how Master would handle things, how he would work with people. Coming to all of this, this little fragment of a note says that Master really rarely talked to them about Kriya or meditation. That he almost always talked to them about having the right attitude. Because if you have the right attitude, everything else will follow. And even if you meditate a great deal, but you don't have the right attitude, it will lead you astray. And is it in this book where Swami talks about it? I just read it somewhere. Let's just see if it was just right here. I remember someone who meditated long hours every day and in consequence became haughty. From haughtiness, sarcasm developed, and from sarcasm, a pleasure in hurting others. Truly, egotism can enter our consciousness through many doors. I know precisely who he was talking about and he's being gentle. (laughs) But the man meditated many, many, many hours every day. But his attitude was awful. And in the end, it completely led him astray. It didn't take him anywhere he wanted to go. So Master was always working with the fundamental. Have the right attitude, everything else will follow. I mean, it goes without saying some of the other practices and so on. But even if you have the right attitude, you will meditate. Because everything will follow from that. If you don't have the right attitude, you won't meditate. Or if you do, it will hurt hurt you to do so. So, of course, in Swamiji's life, he was the same. He was always teaching us the practical right way to live. How to regard our lives and what to do with it. Because once we're on that track, then we're right where we need to be. So, now, that had some relationship to where we were staying powers that we all have, even if to a lesser extent. I think that's what I was working with. That's part of the right attitude to have, which is to say to ourselves, I can do this. And even if I can't do all of it, I'll do the little piece of it that I can do. I believe in myself and I believe in these teachings. Um, I was uh, talking this morning about um, the funeral service that we had on Sunday, which only a few of you attended. It was for a, a woman who died at the age of 90, I believe, who a decade ago, for a decade, used to all come here very often and uh, would come and volunteer, and just a lovely, a lovely person. Um, her family greatly respected her spirituality, and some of her relatives, one or two of her relatives, are also deeply steeped in this teaching, and some of them are spiritual people in other ways, in other, on other ways of expressing it. But almost all of the rest of the people of the 50 or so that were in the room, they were just not self-realizationists. And I said they respected it because the deceased person whom they all loved was into it, but for no other reason. And when uh, we're asked uh, to give a funeral service for a person who who themselves or their family is not really deeply steeped in Ananda, so where the audience is not Ananda, where the audience is just whoever they happen to be, which was who they were in this case, unknown to me and unknown to this path. Um, and even the person who, who had died was only an acquaintance, and I couldn't in sincerity really speak to their character. Just wasn't, I couldn't do it. When my mother died, the rabbi gave the eulogy I happened, I wasn't there, I was in Europe. My sister told me, it quickly became apparent he'd never met, my mother knew nothing about her, which happens a lot, it's really awful that they get a little bit of information. I gave the eulogy for my father and my sister was so relieved. Oh, please, don't let's have the rabbi do it this time. No, dear, I'll do it myself. I would have done it for my mom, but I was out of town. Anyway, so I stood up and I spoke to these people about life and death. Because life and death is something that we're very well trained in. You know, we're, we're not. I, I've been with too many clergy people who, when it comes to death, are just really, with all due respect, as clueless as the man on the street. Or even worse, they're, you know, they're nervous about it because they don't have any teaching anymore that tells them anything about it. I was at a, a Jewish funeral where the person had died slightly prematurely from a very rare disease. And I kid you not, now I'm a Jewish person. I have to say this. But wow, this was really about as bad as it could get. And I don't really think it helped the cause of our people. (laughs) The rabbi started by talking about what a tragedy it was that this person had died from this unusual disease, you know, somewhat prematurely. And uh, if you know, and the reason she died is because it was such an unusual disease, they didn't know how to treat it. And then he asked us all to go home and write a check for medical research. That's how the funeral opened. So that this kind of tragedy would never happen to anyone else again. I mean, I was just, it's very hard to make me speechless and I really didn't have an opportunity to speak, but it, I was just... <laughs> this is how you're trying to comfort us? With fundraising? It's just like wow, but that was all they had to say. So I stood at this funeral and, with great conviction, you know, but with respect, just talked about the continuation of the soul, the astral world's reincarnation. You know, I wasn't giving a short course in karma and reincarnation, but it was just the context. That's why we're here, and our beloved friend is enjoying this as much as we are. So let's you know, let's have a good time here, and everybody loved it. And I don't think they loved it because they believed me. <laughs> but they did because, and I, this is where, this is, again, these are long introductions to short statements. But because, one, I have, I'm absolutely convinced that this is really the way the world works and that this is really true. But I, I had no need to convince them. You know, it didn't matter to me whether they believed or not, but this was my, is my sincere belief. And I felt out of uh, obligation to the person who died who happened to share this belief and a few of her relatives who did, I just needed to say it. But you know what comforted people? I realized in the end was my conviction. You know, it's comforting to have somebody who's um, not afraid. Even if they can't quite go there with you when you just sort of open this expansive net. And the other thing they felt was my desire to share it with them was sincerely and genuinely so that they wouldn't feel so bad. And again, even if they think that I'm loopy, you know, what they really sense is that I mean so well. You know, she's a nice woman and you can tell how much she means so well. But that's very comforting, isn't it? Even if you're, if you're distressed yourself and even if somebody just tries to comfort you with loopy things, if, if they really are sincerely trying to comfort you and not taking the chance to try to convert you one way or another. Now that relates um, to, oh I know what I was saying, the powers that we all have even if to a lesser extent. I knew that I had connected it in some way. It's like one of the things we really need to have on this path, and this relates to a whole lot of them that come later because there's a a theme here because these are all about going to the heart of the matter and going to the heart of the matter internally and not with external authority but with internal concentration. That... uh, we need to have great confidence in these teachings. And we really need to work on having that confidence. That's the confidence of really building our own faith. And we need it for our own satisfaction, but we also need it as as that's what makes us instruments. I mean, Swamiji, using him as an example, he was just so, he was so utterly convinced of this teaching and utterly convinced of the greatness of Master. I, some of you may remember, we, I've told you when we lived in, uh, when we had our ashram in, but well, we still do, in Gorgon, and we had our little shop at the Metropolitan Mall, which was a couple of miles away from where the ashram was, and in those first years, 2003 and on, when we go visit Swami, he would like to go to the Metropolitan Mall, and we would sit in the little coffee shop and drink Italian coffee, and then we would go into the own bookstore, which is right next to it. These are all like pilgrimage spots. And uh, I was standing with Swami in the spiritual book section one day. This is, and I don't, he, he, he thinks like he always wore orange robes, but for some reason I picture him not in them on that day. And this man just comes up and innocently pulls out an autobiography of a yogi off from the shelf. And he's holding it in his hand, and Swami turns just like a child. I was his disciple! <laughs> and the man, you know, was really not bargaining for that much. Mm, so really? Yeah. He was the greatest man I have ever known. He says, that book has the power to just change your life. The man just kind of backs away a little bit. Many people in India are just totally mesmerized by Swami and drawn right to him. This man was not one of them. (laughs) But it was just like, I, I mean, it was so completely, there was just no question, but this was the thing to say. This man's holding an autobiography in the yogi, of a yogi in his hand. I can't let this pass. I have to just tell him who I am and what this is. You know, and that, just that, that feeling, it's very important to be able to cultivate it. Whether or not you always are public about it or not, but you need to be able to do what God wants you to do and not hesitate. And if, if we're full of, you know, doubts and uncertainties in our own self, then they interfere and they, they confuse our intuition. So it, it's a very important factor. So, um, okay, that's what I needed to say. Oh, you know, the same also when Swami says, let's see, everything is, crea- is connected. It's so interesting because the... Um, uh, The ancient uh, scriptures of India are so full of scientific information that was not achieved with prongs. <laughs> it, was achieved as, it was achieved by what uh, Patanjali is writing about here. You can understand the human body, you can understand the stars, you can understand everything that's happening by going into the center of yourself. Patanjali is asserting that these are capabilities that we have and he's asserting them, you know, on the basis of true experience. When, when Swamiji was um, sort of trying to get our teachers into our education for life system, um, perhaps before he wrote the education for life book, but somewhere along in there, there would be the thought, I remember this was all in the seventies and I don't know when the EFL book came out, but there was a, there was an, a long period of time before it did, And even after it did, and when the teachers would say, well, you know, maybe we should go find out what the Waldorf people are doing and find out what the Montessori people are doing and find out what these people are doing. And so he said, no. He said, you should get in tune with Master and feel what it is that that we're doing. And he not only didn't want them to synthesize from other people's input, he actually didn't even want them to expose themselves to it because... The, the hypnosis of other people's authority also can confuse your intuition. Um, it's a, its one of the things that we've had. We're, we're developing in our own school system is, and we're—you know—we're we're quite strong in it now. But just the conviction that we know what we're doing, It's the absolute conviction that we know what we're doing. Did I talk to you about uh, the first grade, te- the teachers, and the suicides in the high school? Did I talk about that here? can't remember. Yes, kind of what you're going to say. I was so how do, you, how do you balance learning with not being confused by other pieces, points of view? Depends sort of on what it is you're trying to develop. Nittai developed a great deal of education for life strictly from just a few guidelines that Master had given him and he developed it all intuitively. And Swamiji many times praised him for that. For, for instead of thinking that somebody else could teach me He just knew that Master could teach him. Now, bear in mind, manifesting education for life was a fundamental intention of Masters. And Nitai was well-trained in the path of Kriya Yoga and being a disciple and being in tune with Master. So he was able to use all of that which was in place. And and he had a few uh, articles and a few guidelines. He had the psychological chart, actually, which he found, which it, it was very interesting because it describes different behaviors ref- reflecting different states of consciousness. And that actually was a very important design. I, I think I'm representing correctly. A very important guideline because he began to see, well, if different behaviors reflect different states of consciousness, how do you cultivate the behaviors that lead to the highest consciousness? And the psychological chart, I don't know where it is in the we, was just, we had it on this little piece of paper that we used to have in the 70s because everything was just Xeroxed, you know, taken from some SRF materials and then Xeroxed, for which we were taken to court later. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> However, it was determined by the court, and I have to put this on the tape because there's a lot of false information. This was the verdict. No matter what you were told by someone else, this was the verdict. I was there. It said, yes, Those materials that you Xeroxed were copyrighted, but, but, it was deemed what's known as a fair use, which is to say what we did was not, was perfectly understandable in the circumstances, which it was all out of print. There was no place else to get it. We did not do it for profit. We did it for study. And so it's the equivalent of being declared not guilty, but they were technically copyrighted. So having said that. We had this on this little Xerox, little piece of paper. But it really did show the progression of consciousness. And so he was able to start there and say, well, if I'm going to show the progression of consciousness. But you see, Waldorf didn't know about self-realization and the progression of consciousness. And Montessori doesn't know anything about that. They knew other things, but they didn't understand any of this. But this is the entire essence of our educational system, is we're going to raise children through to understand the progression of consciousness and to teach them how to do that. So the building blocks were entirely within his reach and no one else had anything to offer that actually related to the core, the center of what we were trying to do. Now, after that, you can go get a math book and a history book and a a phonics system and stuff like that, which we all have done. So it depends um, on what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Whether or not you are um, being either presumptuous or wasting your time to try to intuit it when it's just right there. You know, just go buy the software or get the manual or have somebody sit with you and show you. It just depends. It is a very fine line so it would have to be a specific question. I was talking to an education for life teacher as it happened who was also asking me, you know, feeling insecure in their lack of knowledge, but what I felt the insecurity was about was their lack of faith in their own attunement with what they're doing. And that really seemed to be much more of an issue than a lack of knowledge. And see, that's the line. Am I really... Do I really need more information or do I just need to have confidence in the potential for me to be inspired in what I'm doing. And then it also comes back, and we're, since we're talking education specifically, which is what I was saying a moment ago, it depends on what you're really trying to accomplish. You know, I, there was a, as I think I said in this class, I because I talk several times a week I get confused where, where I said what, but there was a recent suicide, another high school student committing suicide in our local schools, and I think that children dying is really a problem you know and i think we need to we need to understand this is again you see i have such conviction that if we train children in the fundamentals of what we're really doing that they will get far better education than they can get in any other way and everything else is meaningless compared to that because that's what really matters but my, my, i had this conviction you know from the start it's just i think i've suffered a lot in a lot of other lives from uh, not having self-realization. And whenever, whatever incarnation, that lifeline was thrown to me, somehow or another, I had a point of comparison. And, uh, I mean, I, I consider this. <sighs> thank you, God. I mean, and I mean that. I'm not being, I'm not being playful with that. Absolutely. Just thank you for whatever I had to go through, that I know what I've got now. And it's, that's, an easy, that's an easier thing to, to lose track of than you may think. Because you just kind of get complacent in it. And you forget. That's why it's very, very good to often be in contact, to often have the opportunity to talk to people about this teaching who are just learning it. Because then you begin to realize, whoa, what a jewel I have in my hand. Yeah, and that's been my, again, I thank you God, very, very good karma is that I'm always talking to people who know nothing. And when you're talking to somebody who knows nothing, by their response you realize what a treasure you're bringing. Whereas if you're with it all the time, it begins to look like normal life to you. You don't realize it. So that's where he's saying, powers that we all have, even if to a lesser extent. It's not ego. It's actually, it's the opposite of ego. It's respect the masters, and to respect for God's potential inside of you. Very important to have. People get really mixed up and think, they have to say, oh, I don't know enough, I haven't studied enough, I haven't been here long enough. If you know anything, you know enough to turn around and help somebody else or radiate it to the man in the store, whatever it might be. Okay? Any other questions or comments or thoughts? You know, the, the, the idea of, of looking outside of master's teachings for solutions to things that we're doing has been an issue that's gone on all through the years of Ananda. And it is, I mean, because you brought it up, Tandava, it, it's just, it is a very interesting question. And we, we always have to work with, it. I mean, Swamiji could get, could get any knowledge by going into the spiritual high, um, but you can't be presumptuous about that. That's just silly. So you have to balance it. But that, you understand, I think I made the point clearly enough. Swami learned astrology that way, but he also studied. You know, and so astrology was a very good thing. Swamiji, Swamiji wrote his book on astrology without really knowing much about astrology. But he'd, been, he'd always been interested in it. He was interested in it from being in India because of what he understood there, that in ancient times, astrology and yoga were the same science. Because the, the reason astrology works is because... The planets are a symbol of the chakras. And because the chakras have a relationship to the signs of the zodiac, I, I'm never able to say this. Every time I have had to teach it, I study the art and science of Raja Yoga and I memorize that little chart and then I speak it and then it goes out of my head again. But I, I, have, I can say enough now that I know it's true that each of the chakras relates to a certain sign of the zodiac and certain planets and so on, like that. And it's fascinating. It's just really, really fun. And, um, and so the vrittis are distributed in the chakras in a certain way, and therefore they're going to be concentrated in certain signs of the zodiac in relation to certain planets, right? And so you're born at an exact moment, and you know babies have this way of just being born in an exact moment. They're scheduled to come at this time and they come at that time and they're scheduled to come at that time and they come at this time and they pop out prematurely and they hang out in the womb and, you know, they have 30-hour labors or four-hour labors. They do all kinds of very interesting things because there is exactly the moment and that moment is the correlation between the vrittis, the internal horoscope and the stars in the heavens. That's why it can be just stunningly accurate to the day. If, it, if, the, if the astrologer knows how to read it, because the astrologer plays an important role in that. And uh, uh, I think I told you years ago, maybe I don't know if it's for this class, but I'll repeat it now. There was a, a man who was associated with Ananda, who was a very wealthy entrepreneur, who suddenly one of his... Somebody peripherally associated with him uh, was, uh, turned out to be a, a criminal or or did criminal things, or at least fraudulent things. And because of that, he was tainted, he was targeted by the government, and viciously pursued for like two years. You know, spied upon, persecuted, taken to court, all these different things. He was totally innocent, but in the process it completely destroyed his business, absolutely took him to the ground. He had to just let go of his whole company, and... uh, you know, sacrifice himself to save his people and all this stuff. And then um, suddenly, just suddenly, within a week, on his birthday, uh, the government let go and it was over. Okay, that's what happened to him. And then he started another company. And because he's good at what he does, he's come up again. Somehow in the course of this, he remembered or he found a horoscope that his grandfather had had cast for him that was written in Tamil, in India. And I think he, it must have been translated because he read it. And it said that on such and so a day, he will be targeted by the government. He will be persecuted for this period of time that all his accumulated wealth will be destroyed and his reputation will be ruined and it will end on his birthday. <laughs> yes, you just don't know what to think about that. But that, I said, who was the astrologer? <laughs> you know, it was too long ago to, to finally figure it out. But there it is. So Swamiji was, became very interested in astrology because, because Swamiji is always trying to persuade others and because Swamiji himself is not credulous but likes to have reasons for what he does and likes to be able to think it out. He, he's always looking for things that will prove it. So this, you know, prove the greatness of India, prove the greatness of the teachings, prove the interrelation of the universe. So for that reason, he became very interested in astrology. And he wrote that book, you know, Your Sun Sign as a Spiritual Guide, which has been a very sort of chug-along, popular little spiritual book for decades, 50 years now, practically 40 years, because he wrote it very early. But he wrote it mostly by intuition. He would tune in. and he, He said, He said things in there that were not said anywhere else. But Swami became convinced by his thought and his inspiration that those things were true. But, and this is the whole point I'm making, he also read books and he also consulted with a couple of other astrologers who he respected and he was always presenting his ideas to them and I, I used to deal with his letters some at that time. You know, and he would have these... And I couldn't follow a word of it because I knew nothing about it. But it wasn't like he was just presumptuous. This I have intuited. It's this I have intuited. What do you think? And then he would really listen and he would amend his thinking if somebody had a good point. But he wouldn't abandon his thought if he really... Just because someone else said so. So it was a very, you know, balanced perspective on how you move through these things. You'd, if somebody really has something to offer, you want to Listen but you also want to be um, working from whatever intuition you have to to follow that. And that's what this is all about, is just going from the center of things. Okay, any other questions or thoughts on that? Yes, Chris. It says, by samyama, which means absorption in or attunement with, by samyama on the inner light, knowledge of what is subtle, 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 hidden or remote, is obtained. By by Samyama on the inner light, knowledge of what is subtle, hidden, or remote is obtained. Okay? And then he says, everything is connected. And so instead of working outward from the outward in, we work from the inside out. Everything is a projection of God's bliss. It is helpful to understand that the powers Patanjali wrote about are powers that we all have, even if only to a lesser extent. Okay. Rumi Swami gives us a couple of examples about learning language. And language is always an example he often uses because language is a matter of attunement. I mean, I'm not a linguist. I only speak English, so I have no, absolutely no experience with this. But he always gives us these examples of how it is done. With any... Okay, he says, Samyama is not a practice only for gaining occult powers... It can help us, even if we practice it on any subject, with any such subject, be it carpentry, or mathem- carpentry mathematics or how to be a good leader, do samyama on it first. <laughs> so this is also where the external external teaching and inner attunement come from. It might not be that you don't take instruction. You can take instruction, but do samyama first. Become attuned with and absorbed in what you're trying to do. Identify yourself with it from within and you'll understand quickly most of what you need to know. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? You'll understand it quickly. Thus it is easy to understand how concentration on the inner light can help one to achieve knowledge, of which Patanjali writes here. All creation is a manifestation of the inner light. Everything we can want to know is locked in that cosmic treasure house. I think I've all said that. It's, a part of that is don't always be thinking what you don't know. That was sort of when I was uh, talking to you know, some of the teachers, one of the teachers at one point years ago. Just, you know, why are you always thinking about what you don't know? There's so much that you do know. And this is, again, for me, it's like, what are we, what's the main point here? That, that was how Nita approached it. What is the main point? We really want to train them to be able to discern states of consciousness and to understand what action leads to what results. And, w- and when you have that, then everything else can follow from that. The, the education for life is an example I use because it, Swami, it was such a big discussion in our community for so long. But of course, <laughs> Swami, some of the people took that to mean the children didn't have to learn to spell. Swami did not agree. <laughs> he was a very well-educated man and he thought it was very important to well-educate our children. He said, in fact, they should be, come out far better educated. Yes? That we first... Master had called it how to... The question is, did it start as how to live education? That was Master's first name for it, was how to live. First it was how to live education, whatever it came... But education for life is where Swami ended up with it. Um, Because it has a nice double meaning. Lifelong learner as well as learning how to live. It's a, a long battle, but we'll win in the end. Swamiji said the ultimate revolution in education will come from parents. And what I th- realize it may come from is um, uh, the, these children having children. I don't just mean the children in our school, but the, the children who are the product of a lot of what's going on now, who are going to realize that this is really not the best deal. He said it, it will just, I think of it like the organic foods and the whole foods movement which I was in the forefront of that in the 60s, and we were really big time the lunatic fringe. Absolutely just so far out, nobody thought we made any sense at all. Look at it. Look at it now. And nobody ever did anything. I mean, meaning no government made a resolution or anything. And it wasn't even that the people who control money started making it happen. It's the other way around. The people who can make money off it are now scrambling to capitalize on it. It came right out of people's actual experience that they began to see the difference. And that's been the most comforting to me because it's the only actual revolution of consciousness that I myself have observed. All the rest of them are still just languishing. (laughs) Although, no, that's not fair because meditation, look at meditation and yoga. So... It's not fair. (laughs) But it's the one that's really, that's the one I really watched from seedling to full plant, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. So, are we ready? Number 327. By Samyama on the sun, knowledge of the entire solar system can be acquired. By going to the, to the center of any subject, it is possible to understand it in all its ramifications. Truth itself is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. The sun is the center of the solar system. Therefore, it stands to reason that you can understand its planets by doing samyama on the sun. But I don't say everyone can accomplish this end by such means, I even suspect that the knowledge Patanjali himself attained. I love the way Swami says this. Later he says, Am I permitted to express a doubt here? (laughs) He says, I I even suspect that the knowledge Patanjali himself obtained by such a means had more to do with truth on a spiritual level than with, for example, the kind of sand found on Mars. (laughs) Again, I can hear Swami chuckling in his study when he types that one. And then he he tells us so interestingly... My guru said, sun represents the father aspect of God. In my youth, Master says, I spent time at every sunrise, sunrise and sundown gazing into the sun. When the sun is near the horizon, its harmful rays are filtered out. I recommend the first and last half hour of each day. This practice gave me deep revelations of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Every Swami writes in another place, Everything in this world is a symbol of the spiritual world. And the material world, which we think of as so big, Master says, is like the gondola on a hot air balloon. That the astral worlds and the other worlds are gigantic, and this is just a little tiny thing dangling at the bottom. So the sun looks really big to us. But in fact, the sun is only there because of the spiritual eye. So when we're tuning into the sun, we're actually taking the small one... To take us into the big one. I, I'm, I've, I've never done a systematic practice of um, staring into the setting or rising sun, but all of us have had moments at dawn or dusk when you've been able to just see it like that. Often it's when you're on holiday by the ocean or when we would go to India and we'd go out on the Ganges and Varanasi at dawn and you'd just be sitting in this boat and then all of a sudden just there would be this huge orange orb coming up like this and it just, it's there. It's really happening. You don't really know what it is, but you can see it and feel it just instantly. So again, by going to the center of everything, um, center, because spirit is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. So often I've noticed when people are doing projects or even just trying to think something out, they, don't, they, t- they often just sort of try to get what it's supposed to look like instead of trying to get first what it's supposed to be. And so it's, it's often really helpful if you're trying to make something happen. Try to just get, just as he says, just get right into the center. You know, what, is, what experience are we trying to create? What energy flow are we trying to make happen? Not, well, we'll need tables and chairs and I'll need a new dress and we'll have to get our nails done or whatever it is. But it's like, where, where are we trying to be in this? In a relationship, in a, a art of a project that you're doing, in creative work, what's, what what do we need to leave people with? I've, um, as you well know, I've been doing this work for a very long time, and I'm pretty at ease. I'm appallingly casual, let's just put it that way, about uh, standing up and and talking. I'm, there's a trip to New York planned in June. Um, it's being planned from the village. The woman organizing it, I, I wrote her finally and said, you know, is this really happening? Because I'm making plans around it and I really wanted to know. So she was apologizing all over the place for not keeping me informed because she was so busy, because she had too much to do in this and that. I said, look, I don't need to know anything. Just when it's all finished, just direct me to the website. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> and, you know, just tell me the day that I leave. Just tell me when I'm supposed to leave and where I'm supposed to fly. That's all I need to know. Don't waste your time. Sending me extra emails because I don't need to know, but that wasn't always true. And when I uh, was learning, more at a different stage of this work. I mean, I don't mean to be presumptuous in that. That's that's unfair of me. But when you're developing any talent within yourself, you have different you have different challenges at different stages. So to really to just to be very to finish this off. Because um, I, ha- I have this weird capacity as I say to people it's not that I actually know more it's that absolutely everything I know I can say. <laughs> and, and that is just a strange something that was given to me. Just whatever's in my head can come out of my mouth almost without a break. And many people have many more profound thoughts they just can't get them out of their mouth the same way that I can. But, um, so I could always fill the airwaves. Um and I could often win the, wor- the word per minute contest, <laughs> which we used to informally do. But uh, when uh, at this point, for me, what I'm, I have to learn is to be in tune. And in certain ways, that means that it has to be in the moment. So, so too much preparation is counter for me at this point, because then I, I'm not in the moment. And I'm not saying by any means that I have mastered that skill, but that's, that's what my challenge is. So I don't need to know. I almost don't want to know. I mean, I'll know ahead of time, and I will think about it. I, I, re- I know what the Sunday reading is before I hear it, you know. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> almost always, unless every once in a while they switch on me because I had the numbers wrong. But. Um, so it's not like I, I don't play brinkmanship with it, and I don't deliberately not know now, going back, but when I was really learning and I really had to study and really had to think it through, I, I started by saying to myself, and let's work with Sunday service because it's a unique situation because it's such a small period of time, it's, just an, it's unique, how do I want them to feel when they walk out? You know, the, the essence, what is the essence of what people t- need to know about this subject? know, if you're looking at it. And, and that would always start there. Partly because if you start, and I tried to help other people understand this, because you give a 20-minute talk, you spend two days preparing, you have a hundred stories, you've read ten articles, you've got so much more material than you need, and you can't discern among all that material what you, what you do need. I mean, I learned, I learned this. It wasn't like I knew this automatically. I learned this. But if you started from the center of it, which is, what is the essential message here? And, it, and, and really, if you live this teaching, if somebody just rushes up to you and asks you a question, and that's how I used to work with it. I'd look at whatever the Sunday subject was and I would pretend somebody had accosted me in the grocery store and asked me that question without any time to prepare with no robe on and no low, now she speaketh sort of energy, but just somebody walking up and asking you, you know, I feel so lonely in my heart. How do you know that God exist? exists? I want to pray, but is God really listening to me? You know, are we really sinners and damned to hell like they say? And you, you're going to answer. You're not going to say, just hang out here. I'll go to the minister's book and I'll print all this stuff out and I'll study and read it. You know, Then I'll come back and tell you. You're going to answer. And you're going to answer from your own heart and that conviction is going to give you power. So I learned that the first thing I would do would I was essentially answer the heart of the question and think, you know, what is it that I want people to have when they leave here? You know, faith in whatever. And then everything I looked at, I could tell whether it fit instead of just hoping that if I got enough material together that somehow I'd find a thread. And usually, just as a practical matter since I've gotten this far, for Sunday service I would take it down to three points. And I wouldn't necessarily even speak of those three points, but they were also my, like, you know, they were the ace in my pocket. So if, as happened even to me, um, duh, you know, just blank, absolutely you're out of words and you don't know what you're doing, then ah, you can pull out one of your three points. You can even have them a little card. And sometimes you never use them, but they're always there to make you feel safe. But that's, that's a, a very elaborate example, but that is an example of whatever it is you're trying to do, where are you trying to go at the end of this? What is the center point from which this entire thing emanates? And then how do I get there? Okay, I think we're going to take a break. Any comments or questions before we go on? We are a little wandering all over the map tonight, but there you have it. Some nights are like that. We're in the moment. Whether it's mine or yours remains to be seen, but we're in it in any case. (laughs) Tom. Yeah, he was, um, because we, uh, this is for the sake of the recording, I'm saying this because our microphone system isn't working. The comment was, when you start reading Patanjali and then looking back at Swami Kriyananda, you see that he was illustrating the book, and uh, it's the truth. And when I have thought about Swami Kriyananda a great deal over the years, I just keep seeing what he was doing in, in just different perspectives, partly because, you know, I'm a little less confused than I used to be. So I can see, and I've had more life experience myself, so I I, I get more what he was actually working with. But it just it just keeps going like that. But yeah it's right it's all right in here that's why i was saying at the beginning of this i would hear swami talk a lot about the way master behaved and i would just realize he was just describing himself and at one point i said to him you do things the way master did them don't you he says to me of course like what other what other criteria would i use and if if you're not doing it in a certain way that was because that wasn't the way master did it again he said of course meaning because sometimes other people would challenge what he would do, and sometimes people would assert that master would have done it differently. But they merely knew; they, they were not qualified to know. But on what other basis would we form ourselves? And I'll, I'll, I'm going to just tell you this: the silliest story, but it, it, it's something that I, I don't. The word isn't pride, but I'm very satisfied with myself in this respect. I never really knew how to cook. And then Swami taught me how to cook. I've I've explained that before. And then a lot of, over the many years, I often cooked for him. And in the the 70s, before he had a staff and he didn't have anyone cooking for him, I often cooked for him on a kind of random basis. And when he would have people over, I, and I wasn't the only one, but I often cooked for guests and so on like that. Um, And I developed a certain style of cooking. And at one point I realized... I cooked what Swami liked. It was just as simple as that. I never actually learned to cook. I learned to cook what Swami liked. I mean, that would be natural. You're cooking for your family in a very real sense. But my whole sense of what was good was entirely what, what he liked. And I was very pleased with that. that. That it hadn't entered my mind to move outside of that because that was the only, that was the only reason I was doing it. But that's a, that's a small example Cooking for me was a, a real teacher. Cooking was the first thing I learned how to do intuitively. And I was able to learn to do it intuitively because, from my personal values at that particular point, it was absolutely valueless. And so there was no anxiety within me to block my ability to be intuitive because it just. I just, the way I was raised, I was raised in a very, intellect, very intellectual values, and something like cooking just didn't fit anywhere in the story. I mean, we ate, of course, but and it just wasn't, wasn't something you took seriously. So I entered into it just as just this rather trivial pastime, and therefore I was fearless about it. I didn't have any ego at stake. And so, because of that, I learned to be intuitive with it, because there was nothing preventing me from being intuitive, where other things were... Uh, success or failure was such an intense issue I couldn't do it. And the other thing about cooking let's see I was going to say two things about it. What was the other? Oh because I was I learned to do it for him and primarily did it for him um, Swami I understood um, how you develop things merely to serve for just no other reason except that you, you you know out of love to serve. But then you think, well, what am I doing in any area of my life that I'm not developing just out of love to serve? And what part of my life is not in service to the guru? Hmm. Hmm. Good question. wonder what the answer to that is. Hmm. But sometimes the simple one illustrates it because the others get so mixed up in your mind, what you're doing. And yes, Swamiji did all this stuff. He showed that it could be done. But you know, he was an unusual example. I mean, Master was a Jivan Mukta and he was, became free in this lifetime. I and mean, that's what Master said that he would be realized, but it would, the realization would come to him. The understanding of his own realization would come at the end of his life, it would be hidden from him. But even Sister Gyanamata asked Master for Nurbakalpa Samadhi toward the end. He said, My dear, you don't need it. You know, you're done. There's a very interesting little vignette somewhere in that. Just, you're done. Because we think of it all so differently. We think that we can say, well, now I am a sixth degree master, you know, kind of energy like this. We don't understand that it's the dissolution of all that self-consciousness. So I described it, again, in one of my little fragments of notes. Where the ego and the soul begin to cooperate better. That a certain, certain realization is just where the soul and the ego are working more together instead of in such opposition to each other. I thought that was a really sweet way to put it, isn't it? Because you've still got your ego. You've still got to keep going. But the soul starts cooperating with it. Another way Swami put it once was, this was in a different, different context entirely, was he was commenting about the fact that uh, people would have dreams of him or sometimes even uh, Visions. And he said he didn't know anything about it. But then he started just speculating at one point. And he says the soul is simply doing a lot of things that the ego is not aware of. And that you can reach a point, though, where the ego becomes more conscious of what the soul is doing. Because the separation between them is less. Which is another way of saying that your identification with the ego becomes less. It is very interesting. It's very different. That's um, entry number 99 in Conversations with Yogananda. Where Master describes what a problem it is to be God realized, <laughs> because there's always this sort of confusion between your human nature and your divine nature, and it's kind of a tough assignment. I mean, it's really quite an entry to read. You just, it, and then, it, but again, when I read things like that, I think, oh, that's what Swami was working with. That's why that, how Master can be omniscient and still you've got to tell him because he doesn't know until you tell him. Well, that's a very good way to put it. The the ego starts trusting the soul and takes the soul advice. The two of them work together more. (laughs) Because the ego is your friend. The ego is your self-awareness that uh, is motivated enough to do something about the misery you're in. And so the ego either takes its own stupid advice and just makes things worse, or the ego starts listening to the superconscious intuition and the willpower is used to cooperate with um, Superconscious instead of subconscious. Yeah, precisely. Because you're always still, this is my point of view, is that the rest of the mess is just it's still is over there. It's just that you just don't live it in anymore. You just kind of close that room and then you just go over here. And I, I read uh, also, Swami said, Master said, that you know, he, he goes into the consciousness of all his, every disciple, every night is how he put it. And he doesn't, he's not concerned about the bad. He's only concerned about the good. Because he's just going to take the good and he's going to build on it. It doesn't matter to him what the bad is. There's no point in even paying attention to it. Because increase the light and the darkness automatically disappears. So what are you going to do with the darkness? There's nothing to do with it. There's no way, how you don't get rid of the darkness just by saying, whoa, are you ever dark? But if you brighten the light, just think about it. I mean, think about it in terms of guilt and shame and everything. What's the point? I mean, these are, these are problems for all of us. I'm, I'm not excluding myself from this by any means. But what is the point? If you really, really want to be done with this, turn on the light. And that's the opposite of guilt and shame and all of those things. But I love that. master I just wasn't concerned about the bad. But also imagine, imagine how magnificent that would feel to be perceived that way to start coaxing the good out of us. When, he end, when Master enters and takes charge of your life, he starts coaxing you toward the good side. That's right. He decides, he stands there and he keeps, he just says, this way. <laughs> light, this way. Happiness, this way. No, 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 no. This way. Larry. And when you turn on the light through inner communion, the darkness gets swept away. That's exactly right. And But see, also... The difference between the, 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 the Gita verse Larry's quoting, even a little practice of this inward religion will free one from dire fears and colossal sufferings. The difference between having no clue and having a clue <laughs> is really huge because having no clue means we're just randomly here, there's nobody in charge, we don't know why anything is happening, we have no way to influence it and we just wait for the next blow to strike. And having even the smallest idea that there is a divine power in charge, that my life is following a pattern that can be discerned, that the end of this story is a happy one, everything resolves into bliss. I mean, even a little practice, even a little bit of that knowledge just takes you from being nowhere to somewhere. So even if you're really lousy at it, the, the very... That's how it was for me. As, as soon as I captured for me what I captured, change your consciousness, the entire world changes. And that was a chemical-induced revelation when I got it. But um, the chemical just simply showed me, oh, look, by chemistry, you change your perception of reality. But once you change your perception of reality, and that was like... That was it. I, I didn't... I, I was not a very... I wasn't very good at taking drugs. I was sort of lousy at it because I liked my mind. I didn't like it being monkeyed with. But monkeying with it once, and I did it more than once, have to be fair, but one, that one really notable time, it was just like, oh, this is it. And then I began to search for what would actually change your consciousness. But until that moment, it was just confusion. But then all of a sudden, I wasn't any good at it, but I knew then that this is what I was looking for. And really, it was, it was really the lifeline. Just grabbed it and I never let go. It took me a little while to figure out how to follow it, but, you know, I still had it in my hand. So, these are, the things, these are the things that give us an absolute conviction about this path. And they're very important to just keep reiterating them to yourself. Just, you know, over and over you say these things to yourself so that you don't get confused by all the other stuff that comes in on top of it. You just really know right at the base what you've got. And why it matters to you, and why it's a matter of life or death, just as tearful as that, life or death. There was a question over here. Was it you, Chandra? Have you lost it? I, I was. Saying that or... well, you know, what what, what Chandra is saying is that she used to feel. Well, all, I mean, I'm not, this is not what you said, but this is what you said. You, you, you know, we have this illusion that we need to relate to our confusion, that our confusion needs to be, we need to deal with it. That's that woman who. Uh, Uh, was spending time with, was at Ananda, and Swamiji was trying to help her, and she'd go to his satsangs and so on, and finally she stopped coming because she said, when I'm with Swami Kriyananda, I can't remember my problems, and I I need to be able to concentrate and work on them. (laughs) Whoa, this is big time missing the point. Because she didn't understand that you only have problems if you're on the vibration that vibration. So what you're actually saying is, see, as long as you're on the vibration of problems, they will always exist and you will always be confused. And so you cannot solve those kinds of dilemmas on the level at which they exist because at the level at which they exist, they exist. You solve them by lifting your consciousness to a more subtle, a more happy, a more uh, free vibration, a more divinely inspired vibration. And then... You're right. If you go back down to that level, they're still all there, but there's no. What you realize is there is no solution there. So you just go up to this vibration, and then when you start living here, they, it, it's it's a funny thing. But you understand what I'm saying is you can always go back into it, but then after a while you can't go back into it because even when you try to go back into it, the memory of the of the of the clarity. it it can't hold you anymore. I mean, that's a very, you have to be a little careful, but it can't hold you anymore. That's why people find when they start meditating, even when they think not much is happening, but you've started to refine your vibration in whether you're actually shifting your vrittis in the chakras or not, I don't know, but you've certainly refined your vibration by spiritual practice, by changing your diet, by doing yoga postures, by affirmations, whatever it might be, you find your vibration then the same circumstances will come to you and you will remember how you used to respond but you can't find in you that response anymore this used to make me so angry i used to be so afraid when this happens you know i used to be jealous and exactly the same circumstances will come and you can't find that energy anymore you, you just you can't get into that vibration because you're you're now uh, a square peg, and it's a round hole. You just can't go in it. And that's how we actually change. We don't actually change because we've solved it. We've changed because we have shifted out of the vibration where it exists. And that's why we lose our friends and all sorts of things that happen, because we don't match anymore. But that's the good news. Very good news. But then you have to want it. Because there's this other weird thing This is Swami's song, Where Has My Love Gone? It's a beautiful, haunting song. Strange how when love calls, memory stays, calling across the tides of our days. That's how the verse is. Even love has called, but we still remember. I think the French call it, I've been told, nostalgia for the mud, you know. We used to have such good times together on Friday nights going out with the guys, you know. Even though you're way past it now, you still... Or you're or you're moving into this freedom, but you just remember. You know, you see Valentine's Day, you see little babies, you see comfortable little houses, you see lovely young people. I and mean, just something in you still remembers all, all that attractiveness in your caught. This, that's why you can't ever be casual. Yeah, you might even try to do it again, even though it's not working. Not not might. Will. Will. You know, desire for this thing or that thing calls you away again. And again, you have to be very humble. You also have to be very patient. And you have to be very uh, forgiving of yourself and others. Because, you know, there you know i could have too i was talking to someone recently about something and i said you know it wasn't i who did it but i probably would have would have if i been given the chance <laughs> you know or at least i cannot say from absolute certainty that i wouldn't you just don't know it's not like you're being you're being you know not putting yourself down it's just like we don't really quite know what we're made of And so when God tests us, we get to find out. Like Swami, when I was weeping over the sudden realization of a terrible fault that I thought I'd overcome, well, he said you thought you were over it, and so you weren't putting out any energy to get over it. Now you find out you aren't. That's the good news. Now you can work on it. Well, I sure didn't see it like that, but he was right. That's why we have tests, because God steps on us, and then all the stuff that comes shooting out, you didn't know it was there whoa, a lot more pus in that one than I thought. I mean, it's, it's, it's icky. But that's true. It's just true until we're free. That's why Swami, I've I said this not too long ago, that's why Swami would talk so casually about, oh yeah, I was in Savakalpa Samadhi, but then I argued with my guru and then I fell. And, yeah, wow. That was a lot of misery, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, but you get over it. I mean, he, you know, he was very deliberate. You think about that. Oh, okay. So I just messed up too, but I'll get over it. Okay. Even a little practice of this inward religion free fears from dire fears and colossal sufferings. Okay. We got from 326 into 327, but I'm not certain that we're finished with 327, so we'll defi- I'll look at it and decide. If I could borrow a pen from someone, I will write that down. Thank you.